Why We Bleep is sponsored by Signal Sounds. Hey, Daniel Miller and Gareth Jones fan. Are you trying to downsize your hulking collection of Eurocrack? Planning to focus in on a few key well-chosen modules and set some boundaries and get that EP that you've been talking about started? Well, put those buying habits to bed. By just buying one small last module in the form of the absolutely mind-bending ADAC 112 granular processor and VC looper, I'd sell my kidneys to pay for it, if I had any kidneys left. By all means, pare things down with meters of 1U modules, so small they don't even count. You could get the new Intelligel 1U VCO and all those wonderful mosaic modules that signal sounds have in stock. Cut back. By cutting open your wallet and just getting those three rad new analog expert sleepers modules. So to stock up on the absolutely last-minute essentials that you will need before cutting down your collection, there's Signalsounds.com. Visit Signalsounds.com. Why We Bleep is also sponsored by Tiny Crush Mixing. Do you need a helping hand to mix your project? You, friend, need Tiny Crush Mixing. Tiny Crush Mixing is Hugo R.A. Paris, a master of acoustics and signal processing, modular musician and synthesist, who is also a label mate of Terry Riley, Amulets, Colleen, who is also co-developer of the 4MS Spherical Wavetable Navigator, and who also worked for MIT, Caltech, and was five years at Stanford working on the Nobel Prize-winning scientific project behind the first detection of gravitational waves. Hugo is actually a real person, and you can benefit from his ears to mix your tracks or album. Hugo dances that very fine line between art and science needed to make your mixes shine. And for one month, you can get 10% off a Tiny Crush mixing project by mentioning Why We Bleep. So for your next mix, go to tinycrushmixing.com. That's tinycrushmixing.com. Why? Hi, welcome to Why We Bleep. This episode is a conversation between two legends, which is a word I think that gets kind of bandied around a bit, but I think it's pretty justified. Daniel Miller and Gareth Jones are music producers. Gareth Jones has worked with such bands as John Fox, Depeche Mode, Wire, Erasure, and Interpol's Turn on the Bright Lights, which is a personal favourite of my wife, Rachel, who was very impressed that I was talking to Gareth. And things such as Grizzly Bear's Vecumatest, amazing, amazing albums that he has had a hand in. And Daniel Miller, who you may be familiar with, is the founder of Mute Records, a person instrumental in bringing the world to Pesh Mode, and who I guess you would say is a sort of pillar of the British music scene. And also, uh, to his massive credit, a colossal modular nerd. Yes. They're all modular nerds. And Daniel Miller, my goodness, really is a synth nerd. He has got some synths, let me tell you. I watched the fantastic Bright Sparks documentary, which is produced by Dave Spears of G-Force fame, which, by the way, 
set aside two hours and watch the Bright Sparks documentary. It's wonderful. It talks about Bob Moog, Alan R. Perlman, uh, Chamberlain, like the history of these amazing legendary musical instruments. But in it, Daniel Miller lets slip, who is, he was interviewed in it, that he has a Synthy 100. He has a Synthy 100. That's not something many people have uh, or that they have space for. So Daniel's love for modular, it goes way back. Um, I actually have met Daniel at Moogfest. I had a very, very funny <laughs> experience where I saw he was out uh, outside and we were going for dinner and I just went up to him and I was like, hello, my, my name's Alex. And he said, I know who you are. <laughs> to which I was just like, okay, Daniel Miller, that's fine. <laughs> that's weird, perhaps because he is aware of uh, the sort of um, content that I evacuate from my, my channels. Both Daniel and Gareth were up for talking on the podcast, which was pretty sweet because they have just made a record together. Now, of course, they are music producers. We know this, but they've not made a record before together. They've put put out music that is on compilations as Sunroof, but they haven't made an album. And the whole thing about that is very interesting. And that's basically what this podcast became about, because Sunroof is the name of Daniel Miller and Gareth Jones making music together, which they've done since the early 80s. And they talk about this. But what they've not done is finished music until the 20s. Because this is very much the story that I think many of us who are into modular are familiar with, which is finishing bloody tracks when modular synthesizers just propagate this kind of long-form jam thing. You know, it's so fun to create musical systems with a modular synth, and it's so fun to kind of ride them and, and watch them play out. But it does make for long, long, long sessions. And despite the decades of experience between Gareth and Daniel, it was really edifying and heartening to hear them just sort of confirm, yeah, it's really hard to whittle down one hour, two hour jams into anything that's meaningful. And so... This is an album that is made by doing long jams, but by finding a way of doing jams, setting some rules that Daniel and Gareth abided by, which actually led to them completing an album. And I think that's really very interesting because, good grief, if you're anything like me, um, it's the finishing that's hard. So if you listen to the podcast, you will hear what they came up with. A last word before we go in, apologies for the sound of Gareth Jones, not he himself, who has a wonderful voice. Gareth was on holiday, so he was unfortunately not able to get to a computer um, because, quite rightly, he hadn't actually taken a laptop with him on a holiday, although he had taken a 62 HP uh, IntelliJump palette case, uh, which unfortunately does not have internet capability. And so, we literally had to speak to Gareth through the phone. And I just want to also shout out the Rode, Rodecaster Pro, which if I didn't have that, I would not have been able to capture this podcast. So um, shameless plug, if you make podcasts, you really should be thinking about getting a Rodecaster Pro. 
If I did not have that, it would not have allowed me to record Gareth through the phone while Daniel threw the computer and me locally and knit them all together and piped Gareth to Daniel so that, you know, they could hear each other and be recorded. Anyway, amazing device. But it did mean that Gareth was talking through a phone. So it's a little bit lo-fi, but I've also used Isotope RX. Shout out Isotope, just to slightly bring a bit of detail back into Gareth. There's this crazy like frequency recovery thing in RX. Not perfect, but I hope you can understand it. So apologies for the slightly funky uh, sound, but Daniel, of course, sounds like warm and leatheretty. More like leather, real full leather um, at this point. So let's learn how to finish our damn jams with Gareth Jones and Daniel Miller. Thanks very much. Where to even begin? I was going to ask about the sort of inception of the record, basically. Why this record? And I guess, why now? Oh, well, I mean, Gareth and I have been working together in various ways on projects since the early 80s, starting with the Depeche Mode album Construction Time Again, when we were looking for an engineer. We planned to record in John Fox's studio, The Garden, in Shoreditch. And we asked John who he could recommend, and he recommended Gareth because Gareth had worked with him on Metamatic, which was his album. And uh, so the band and I interviewed Gareth, and we felt it was, uh, he was uh, weird enough to join the, uh, to join the club. <laughs> and, and actually, that was a bit of a two-way street as well, because I was a bit suspicious of uh, the whole thing, because, you know, it seemed a bit mainstream to me, and uh, Depeche was obviously a band who'd been on the radio and everything, and that made me a bit nervous. Um, but but when I met them all, I thought they were all delightfully weird. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that a primary criteria at the time? It's just weird. Well, it seemed like a, a meeting of souls and minds, you know. So yeah, so he got hired. So we went in the studio, and sometimes after we finished the, the studio session, the band went home for a bit of light relief. Gareth and I started jamming a bit on synths and. Gareth was using the studio as an instrument with, you know, effects and stuff like that, just for a laugh, really, just to kind of clean our heads and also maybe even come up with some ideas. And, and we've kind of continued that process over the years many times, but we never really finished anything. It was just all just like jams. And a couple of years ago now, I guess, well, 2019, beginning of 2019 sometime, I went, we were off to, to see a gig um a concert i should say it was a ligety concert at the barbican and gareth's studio is quite nearby so i popped in with my little modular traveling case and we had a bit of a play around and it turned out quite well and you know at some point one of us said i think it was gareth so why don't we actually do something and finish it for once i mean it wasn't going to be a record originally it was just going to be let's just finish some stuff yeah we'd done the really long like one hour jams before and you know, editing them is just, you know, no fun. And we didn't really do them to finish them. We just did them for fun, you know. So, yeah, we did do a bunch of recordings in the 90s where the length of the, the length of the jam session was determined by the length of the ADAX tape that we had in their player. Yeah, so, you know, exactly. they could have gone on for like six hours, but they kind of ran out after 45 minutes, most of them, or an hour, depending what. But I think one of the things that was special about this 
little meeting before the gig at the Barbican was because we were going out for, to, to uh, meet, meet, I think, meet friends, my wife and possibly someone else for dinner and go to a concert. We, so our time was very limited. So we, we were kind of forced in and we realized that in a, in a rather short amount of time, I would guess like about three hours, we'd actually made a piece of music from beginning to end that was about, you know, six minutes long or something. And, and, uh, and, and it was possibly more, it was satisfying. I suppose at that stage, we didn't judge if it's finished or not. But I think that was part of it. We, we, sat, we looked at each other and realized, oh, look, if we focus and show up and focus, there's a good chance in two or three hours we could make a piece of music that has a, has a beginning and kind of a middle and an end uh, without having to go to six in the morning. Mm. And, and, and I think that was super important to both of us because if it had been these six in the morning things like how we started in the 80s, I don't think either of us would have managed to fit it in around our day jobs. Yeah. So how do you, how do you make that leap? How do you know what's worth finishing, especially with like – especially that whole thing of jamming for hours and hours. So that's the thing I always struggle with. Well, we, once we decided that we were going to do this, this little project, we made a few rules, like a, a little manifesto. And, and the, key, the key one, the key rule, I think, was that we limit our, limited ourselves to about six minutes of music. We would go to the studio. One of the things we worked in, tried to work in different spaces as much as possible. We'd go to the studio. We wouldn't discuss anything beforehand. We both got our travelling Intelligel 7U cases. We wouldn't patch? Yeah, we wouldn't pre-patch anything. Oh. We didn't really discuss what we were going to do. We just started patching, and when we had a clock, one of the only thing we had that was connected between us was a clock, and which we didn't, I don't think we always used it. But anyway, um, and we just started patching, kind of listening to what each other was doing. So we were like on monitors, not on headphones. And then at a certain point, we said, oh, that sounds pretty good. Let's press record. And then we just developed that patch or, or developed that piece, that thing, over a six-minute period. So it's literally like now's the time you hit like a timer and then it's, you've got six minutes. Yeah. It's not you've got an hour and then with, you know, within the next two hours, you've, you've got it down to six minutes. No, it's all, done li- it's all done as live with two stereo outputs, one from each, uh, one from each system. And, you know, we recorded in Ableton as it happened it didn't matter what we recorded in but we made a window six minutes wide on the laptop you know so, so that was our time so there were two clocks that were important I suppose one was the sync clock between us which we didn't always use as Daniel said and the other was the clock across the, the range page of Ableton so that you could see okay that's it and obviously after we'd done a couple we quickly got a feel for how long uh, six, this six minutes was yeah you know, so so we didn't really we weren't like looking at the screen, but it was a really good discipline for us because because we were both very keen and still are actually ongoing to not get too lost in editing at this stage of our uh, musical relationship. <laughs> We've done a lot of editing, and and uh, we obviously we're both pretty busy, um, and, and Daniel tends to get very scheduled up. And even finding the time to edit the record would have meant that that wouldn't have worked. The fact that we were able to make some pieces that we felt we could listen to live was very important to finishing. And the other thing is when you, when you, work, when you work to a fixed amount of time, you, there's an, a natural arc to it. 
I wouldn't necessarily call it a beginning, a middle, and an end, but there's an arc. And if you if you edit down an hour's jam, you're trying to recreate something, create an arc that wasn't really there in the performance. Like Gareth, like what sort of when you've hit go, like what sort of things are actually going through your mind? Like when you're as you're playing in that moment, what how do you think about what you're going to do? What how does that work? Literally, what goes through your mind and when it's it's green light go time? I would hope, you know, I'm, you know, this is a bit in parallel with what I've been reading about. Not, not that I compare myself to an Olympian as a modular person. I'm much more like a stool amateur. But, you know, but like the, nothing goes through your mind, I hope, because there's a lot of listening going on. We've both been listening to the different tones and textures and possibly rhythms that we've been creating as we've built the patch. And then once, once we've, we're, we're kind of, we're not talking, so we're aiming to get in a zone. It's almost like a, 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 a you know, speaking for me here, it's almost like a shamanistic ritual. We're not, we're not high on psychedelics, but it's, for, for me, it's that kind of approach. We've gone into a zone. We're not talking. I'm not re- I personally am not really thinking. I'm responding to this, the ocean of sound that we're both in that we're kind of co-creating. And I don't have a plan. I don't know where I'm going, except that I know that we've made this commitment that we're not going to go longer than about six minutes. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the thinking bit, for me, I suppose, is when you're actually making the patch in the first place. Because I want to, you know, I'm listening to what Gareth is doing. He's listening to what I'm doing. And if he's doing something, I thought, oh, if I plug that in, that, that might work. Or if he's in a certain frequency range... I might go into a different frequency range. And then, you know, you get your, the sounds. And I've got a little mixer, modular mixer. Turn everything down and then start turning things up and playing. And, yeah, I think you know, I, I, I'm not really thinking about anything except it's more about listening and, and responding to what's, what I'm hearing. And, Gareth, it's a feedback loop of, of response, really. So I'm responding to him and he's responding to me. Yeah, it's, it's like... I'm, I'm on holiday in Greece at the moment, and most mornings I go for a swim in the sea, and there's no one about. I'm quite an early riser currently. And, uh, I, and the best part of the swimming is if I'm actually not thinking, and I'm just swimming and taking in the nature around me. And it's kind of, there's a parallel to that. Mm. It's absolutely a form of like mantra meditation, isn't it? Or like, a, it's meditative. It literally is. There you go. I, weirdly, I remember... Um, I've told this before, but I went to the, when Schneider's Bureau had a kind of, did you see this, Daniel, where they had like the London set up in Rough Trade? In Rough Trade, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And it was, I remember a very particular experience early on. I, I didn't own a modular at that time and I was sort of specking one. And I went in there and I got the key and they let me in and I was free to sort of play. And then a big monster system looks like the one you've got behind you, yeah. Daniel. And it was, I stood up, I had the patch cables and basically spent probably 45 minutes just, you know, just patching things, trying different stuff and out. And you slowly build up a kind of performance patch. And there's a kind of, you have a little jam. And at the end of it, I sort of put it all away and thank the guy and left the shop. And then I remember I was walking down Brick Lane and just, and I felt, I felt like I'd meditated. Like I had that same feeling that you feel when you've tried meditation. There's that sort of sense of lightness and kind of clarity. 
that just is the the beauty of modular it can sort of foster those those moments because you're kind of i guess you're free to take your hands off and listen a bit it's not like playing instruments where it physically requires that you stay engaged if that makes sense you can sit back totally yeah yeah absolutely i mean yeah you get to a point in a patch or whatever i mean i do a lot of nothing in the studio i mean a lot of mucking about as i call it not to not with any end in sight and yeah you get to a moment and it, it all feels alive you know it doesn't work and then all of a sudden there's something a few things going on it sort of all feels very like it's alive it's taking it, you've stopped engaging with it it's now engaging with itself somehow and that's the point where as you say you can just sit back and listen and you're not actually doing anything and it's you're making music but you're not actually touching anything and that's wonderful isn't it and and also it's something i suppose that we've all got experience with this very very extended modular patching sessions that we all do on occasion you know that, that's time stands still doesn't it mm. you know it's a classic experience for all of us suddenly you look at the clock and it's three in the morning and you think my god it was only 10 o'clock last time i looked at the clock mm. yeah uh, you know because because we vanished into, into into this zone so i suppose we had this zone but then we also had this really strong wish and intention once we'd got into the zone which sometimes took us an hour to maybe those of us patching maybe to then say okay but we're only going to record it for six minutes so as daniel said then we kind of turn down and try and get to a starting position i can't remember if i had a mixer or not but i would certainly try and shut everything down so we could get to a, some kind of starting point and then just let it flow man <laughs> conduct <laughs> yeah it's like the perfect combo there you've got all the freedom of modular but you actually have an ounce of discipline <laughs> so some impetus yeah. so sorely missing from the modular discipline i feel i think i think alex that came from us having mucked about for 40 years and never finished anything mm. you know we, it, was, it was not a discipline we arrived at easily or early in our musical relationship what were you when we talk about these like you know back in annals of time like 40 years ago what would the jams be what would they be on what would you be what would your weapons of choice be well i had um i had an arp 2600 which i still have and a system 100m i think that's pretty, pretty much it, isn't it gareth and uh, of course the, the legendary art sequencer i mean the legendary art sequencer which is a, which you still have, I believe, and it's a big part. I think it's behind that. you, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I can see it. You know, back in the eighties or, or and earlier, you know, there was a, a bit more of a requirement to have someone who was willing to play the instruments in the studio. You know, the effects and the uh, the, the signal routing and so on, because lots of musicians didn't do that. Now, all, all musicians are very conversant with signal flow. Everyone's got a studio on their laptop blah, 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 it's a different time. But so I felt very much that I was in the tradition of many electronic music uh, engineers who were super interested in the studio. I felt I was playing the studio, as Daniel said at the beginning of our chat. So I was using reverbs and delays, essentially. Space echoes, chorus echoes, tape delays, um, you know, early digital delays, and a wealth of reverbs and uh, kind of dubbing it up. Not, not that I'm a, not that I'm a, a dub uh, a genius in, in like like the great Adrian Sherwood or Mad Professor or anything, but I would be doing my version of dubbing it up on the mixing console. Mm. 
never recorded any of that stuff, actually. Probably just as well. <laughs> but it was fun. <laughs> That's always the sort of magic of, of jamming and live improvisation. It's just, it's unrepeatable. I've always, I've never been brave enough to not record it in that sense. Like there are times where I've been practicing with modular and you, you do things you're like, shit, that's gone. Like I, I, that was, I, you know, half an hour ago, I remember there was something incredible. It's like, it's gone forever. I think there's certainly poetry in that. In like getting in, in the age where everything is recorded, it's like some things truly can be live. I think that's the sort of, and it does feel like a modular. It by design encourages that. It, it it's necessity because you can't repeat it. Yes, yes, Alex. That's so. That's been so powerful for me personally and creatively. It's really only in in the last years since I've dabbled in the, in the Euro rap modular as it happens. But that I've been able to make music and finish pieces because I'm forced to commit. I never managed to do it when I was using software instruments. I could do record productions and help other people finish records, but I couldn't finish any of my own stuff. So it's been so liberating for me. It's, it's, it's exactly what you're saying. I think there's such a powerful part of it that, that I can't repeat. I'm not skilled enough to be able to repeat what I do. And so it's now or never. Yeah. Daniel, you said you'd given up the DAW before we had a, as we were starting. What's what's the story? Well, f- first of all, you know when I got into modular more and more and more, and especially over the lockdown, I um, but before then as well. There's so much. There's so many options in Europe. There's so many things you want to do. Then if you have like plugins and everything else, it's like it's too much. And I don't enjoy using plugins. You know, I mean, I had I went through the phase some years ago when in print in theory i had nearly all my my pre euro rack instruments on my laptop you know like a moog and a art 26 but i never did anything with it i didn't enjoy it it wasn't fun and i realized that the fun thing is not the instrument itself or the sound of the instrument it's the interface and then it got even more extreme during lockdown because i was on basically on zoom calls all day long every day and the last thing i wanted to do is like look at my computer yeah so so I just I just use it for recording and maybe a couple of effects or something, but but basically just for recording, you know, and uh, and it's so much better it's, for me anyway. I'm people make great do great work on DAWs, of course. I'm not that's just a very personal thing, you know. Yeah. Well, we talk about the modulars, especially like the ones that you're putting together for this record. You said obviously it's like two IntelliJ seven new cases. Can you talk a bit about a? There's no planning, but what modules do you choose? Um, and then I suppose the question is, what kinds of patches do you patch up? And I don't know if, Gareth, you want to start us off. Well, I guess there was there was no shared plan. I'm sure we're speaking, I'm guessing that Daniel probably put as much thought into what was in his case as I put in, as to what was in my case. But we didn't discuss it with each other. So I guess any of us, when we, when we build a little modular case, we're, we can put quite a lot of planning into it, you know, with the help of modular grid, obviously, and, and, and just looking at what we've got and what we're trying to achieve. My case was a make noise shared system that I'd assembled in, in, in separate components over five years or something. Um, I, I fell in love with uh, whatever the make noise aesthetic might be. I, I connected to it somehow because I like the idea of it being a kind of purpose built instrument. I felt I had a solid 
foundation to bring to our meetings where I felt I could do, I could reasonably do some stuff that wouldn't embarrass me too much when I was with my mate. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so, so, so there was that. And I do remember, and a, a big part of my sound at that time was also the uh, Strymon Magneto, um, which, which, I, which I'm nuts about still, actually. It's not in my current case, but, but it's, I, obviously I still own it. So we allowed ourselves a, a case a seven new case with, and then also another like a pallet in front of it, uh, where where I had a, a you know Tempe and a Rene and pressure points, and I think Daniel had a um, five twelve vector that he's that he's totally deeply falling in love with, but, but 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 portable, so I could put these on the bus, right? I could I could carry them in two hands, and that was quite important because we we met in all different venues around London, different places. Dan's home studio and my little studio in, in East London and the music studio and we borrowed a couple of rooms from Strongroom Studio that we've got a good relationship with and so we, we tried to meet up in a different space every time and we liked it so much if I could just jump ahead now to where we're at now we've just dipped our toe in the water of experiment, uh, electronic music improvisation volume 2 and we, at Daniel's suggestion, we reduced the size of our cases. So, so that's kind of super fun as well. Just to go back to your question, um, my travel case is, is a, serves lots of different per, a number of different purposes, and it's crammed with modules, too many modules. So the thought of changing anything is a complete nightmare because you know what it's like. I've got those ribbon extension cables underneath, you know, and you know what's going to happen. You take one out and you put one in, then nothing works, and you have to take the whole thing apart. So, so my, yeah, my travel case serves as a live case. I've done a few live things. It serves as a case that I take to studios if if somebody wants a bit of modular on them, and it serves as my just my if I go away somewhere, because in the old days before lockdown, I was traveling quite a lot. So I used to take it with me in a hotel room kind of thing. And it's a real, it's unlike Gareth, it's a mishmash of lots of different things. You know, the vector sequence is like the, the kind of heart of it, which is a real, for me, because that was one of the things is that I used to use numerology, which is a software sequencer made by five, by Jim Coker, 512. And just around, and then at the time that, the vector came out. It was just the time that I was going away from the DAW, and I, I love that numerology, and so it was perfect, and I absolutely love it. Anyway, yeah, I mean, I, there's a few weird modules in there. There's this module that I really love, which is not made anymore by Pittsburgh, called the Generator, which is a kind of complex os, sort of FM, os, not FM, but two oscillators and one that kind of feed back to each other, and just for, great for percussion sounds and stuff. I love um, fixed bank filters, so I've got a small one of those. Um, I'm trying to think now what's in there. Did, Which one? Uh, EMW. Yeah. And um, the frequencies that they use were the same frequencies that were used in the Roland VP330. Yeah. Which I really love, the, the kind of sound. <laughs> and, um, and it's quite small as well. And, the, you know, things like Batumi and... A disting and the uh, intelligent some intelligent uh, four envelope thing. Um, Quadrap. Yeah, the old one, not not the, the souped up one. You know, some VCAs, some 
Um, not many effects, really, unless I... Not many effects. The Clavis uh, Twin Waves module, oscillator, which is great. I got the the Clavis Quadigy envelope generator as well. Oh, yeah, the, vol- the, voltage, the voltage block. The voltage block, really important. Mm. Not so much as a sequencer, but as a kind of mixer, CV mixer thing. It's, it's oh. really useful, really good for that. In what way? What do you... Well, I wouldn't, use, I wouldn't run it, I wouldn't clock it, but I would take the voltages out, the CVs out, put them into maybe a filter or a... And then just use them as... You then turn up the faders and down the faders, and it's, you, you just have a lot of control without getting your hands dirty, you know? Oh, so like you'd use it as a kind of macro controller, basically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Talking of which, the, the other things that were in there... So this is a bit of a plug, sorry about this. Um, <laughs> I think I know what's coming. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I did a collab. I did a collaboration with uh, Future Sound Systems on a couple of modules, which I really n- missed. Yeah, that's I'm, the f- I'm that's one of them. Stum. Yeah, keep it stum. Um, which I really missed, especially for playing live. But in general, you know, and the macro, which is called the macro, is like it's basically a it's just one knob with six voltage outputs with attenuate verses. You can control, you can make big changes quickly. I love that. I like because when you do live stuff, you I mean, I've seen you do your live things, obviously, and your mm. videos and stuff. It's how do you do changes, transitions, and things like that? Yeah. You know, that's a big. It's, it's, you know, it's 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 a it's a, uh, <clears throat> it's a challenge. So the macro, you know, you can just change six voltages at once and uh, with one knob. So that was great. And the the, the when you just hold up the stum is a mute module, that's but it's it. got <laughs> slightly. You know, there are a lot of those about, but that one's got grouping on it, yeah. which is the difference. Which is you. In a sort of techno or in a you know classic sort of techno sense, you can you can have you can you can take out the kick and the snare and the bass all at the same time and just have the hi hat going. So it's not like you don't have to fiddle around with lots of switches. It's just like assigning things to groups and then cutting them in and out. So that was basically yeah. And they were in there, of course. I always forget that you know, but they were in there in important parts of it. And the vector and then I have a Bifaco mixer, hex mix. Yeah, love that. Which is really really good, really, especially for live. It's super useful. Um, you know, the sends and the EQ and everything like that. Really nice. I wish it had sliders instead of knobs for the volume, but hey, you can't have everything. Mm. <laughs> That's weird. What is that sound? Oh, it's the Hoover. <laughs> My wife's hoovering upstairs. I was like, wow, what's that synth? <laughs> and it's interesting, the idea of like the, the singular macro control to control everything. It's an interesting module. I haven't actually spent a lot of time working with it. I suppose the question is like, what sorts of things do you enjoy assigning it to if you've got one big knob to control a whole system what does it do well classic i mean you know again i mean i'm a huge techno fan even though i don't do techno modular stuff but i love techno and i dj techno so for instance you might want to open the filter control the send level to an effect have an lfo that speeds up all at the same time it could be anything you know i use it in a slightly more abstract way than that generally speaking but that's good that you say that as well daniel because I, I I was kindly Daniel kindly sent a, a, a macro my way, and and my first thought was, oh God, I've got to program up six things. But then I realised, of course, it's really powerful if I just program three things as well. So you don't have to use the whole. So I found that slightly less intimidating, really, because at first the th- the thought of trying to think of what am I going to do with all these six different voltages to make sense, and then I thought, oh, hang on a minute, it's already really good just controlling three. Um, and there's a good backstory to the macro, and I'll make this brief. Because a long time ago, Daniel was very keen on Ableton Live and was exploring it a lot, and we used it in some of the remixes we did as Sunroof. 
as well. Uh, Ableton became a part of that. And I remember when Ableton released the macro function, um, I, I, Daniel introduced me to it and he was very excited about it. And it's years ago now. But, but it's interesting that to me that in a way, I mean, I know we had groups on the mixing console back in the 70s, but in a way the macro module was kind of inspired in my understanding of it by the implementation that Ableton did in live seven, eight years ago. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and also I saw, you know, I, I felt I wanted one. It's not just for big changes because that's the thing about it. You can do really small changes as well. Just like tiny little movements, you can really make very different sounds, you know, just changing a few things at once. Yeah, so, yeah. Mm, especially with like complex oscillators, like index yeah, controls, exactly. things like that, just nudge. Yeah, you can plug them all into a into a further generator or something and, you know, or whatever your complex oscillator <laughs> of choice is. <laughs> You've got a lot of control, even small changes, you know. And, and for me, the pressure points is like life-changing because, it, you know, it allows us to return to the point that we departed from and and before before i used pressure points and now the macro i could depart from a point that i was at but i could never get back there yeah. <laughs> you know i like being able to go sometimes i feel it's appropriate to be able to return to the to the starting point you know when i let go of the pressure points it goes back to where it was before it's a simple enough thing but it's brilliant for me yeah, when you say that, that does sound like a very novel concept in modular. <laughs> <laughs> Could you do that again? That was great. No, I can't. I, never, I cannot. You know what? You know, fifteen minutes ago, that thing you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I've very few rare occasions that I've had a modular in a studio. I've sort of borne witness to that, and just I made a point of just saying, "Can I just ask you to please record everything that's happening as it happens? Do not expect me to be able to repeat anything." I, yeah, I think you say. Unless I misheard you, Alex, you said you're not brave enough not to record things because I'm not brave enough to record things. I never, you know, I still have a problem pressing that button. <laughs> it's that question of how to edit. And I think, you know, there must still have been an element of that in this project because you, you know, if you've got the option of doing six minute jams and surely you can just go again, or did you have a rule that says you're not allowed to do two takes? Sometimes we did, we did two takes, but not because we didn't like the first take. We didn't like it or dislike it. We didn't know. We just thought, oh, let's let's just do another one and see what it sounds like, you know. And would you would you ever tempted to concatenate the, the the takes, or it's it is what you hear is what you got? Yeah, I mean, they were very the takes might they might be the same patch, but they sounded very different. And uh, there was no editing between takes. Do you find the modular a useful tool in just general production? If I'm co-writing and producing, yes, because it's my instrument, and that's the only way really I can. I can bring some musical color to the table. So, so yeah, if I'm if I'm writing and producing, I find it hugely valuable. If I'm in the room with the person that I'm writing and producing with, it requires a certain sympathetic patience from from their end of things. Um, obviously, I, I was very pleased uh, when I helped Sasha mix the Apera record uh, LP five at one point. I broke out my modular in the middle of the mix to to uh, enhance a little bass part at, at one stage, and I was so delighted that uh, that it went so quickly and went so well and everything. 
And then, like a week later, Sasha said, "Oh no, we replaced that with massive. It sounded much better." <laughs> <laughs> oh no! <laughs> so, yeah, it was only a small color, but it was really funny. That I went from, "Oh well, I, I tried. At least I tried." Yeah, <laughs> but uh, I mean, I, I like to be fast and effective when I'm working with people in the studio, uh, which is one of the reasons why the Sunroof project went went so well because we both committed to this. Let's be fast and effective and not judge it. We didn't listen to any of our takes after we'd done them for months. Uh, and that was part of the concept, I suppose. And, and it wasn't in the manifesto, but it became very apparent, I think. Daniel suggested it very early in the process. We probably FaceTimed or something, and I said, have you listened to it? And Daniel said, no, and I don't think I'm going to. And I hadn't listened to anything at that stage either. And that was super helpful when. I suppose it was like six months down the road when we thought, well, we've got quite a few pieces now. Maybe it's time to start listening and see if we like any of them. And by that time, we've obviously gained a different kind of perspective. So if we did a second take, it wasn't like we listened to the first take and then said, oh, well, not bad, but, you know, maybe we can, like, you know, improve the middle eight or something. It wasn't that kind of... It was just like, oh, that was fun. Have a cup of tea. Shall we just have another go, or shall we build another patch, or shall we go home? Yeah. And the thing about giving it time is you distance yourself from the experience, and it's just about the the music. And that's really, I think that's you know, that's a very um, useful tool because you can remember the experience. Oh, it was an amazing night. We had a great time. Went out for a great meal and had a, whatever. And then you listen to it as shit. And um, yeah. Um, so it, it takes you away from the experience. You forget who played what in a lot of cases. I listen to it and I say, well, I know I played that bit, but who did that? You know, and it doesn't, it doesn't matter, of course, you know, so. I was going to ask you, like, do you, did you have, like, obviously defined roles when you play, but it doesn't sound like you did? No, the answer is no. There were, you know, no. I, I mean, I, that's always an interest, especially when you play. I was going to play live with somebody once and then COVID happened. We was actually with Finley from Future mm. Sound Systems. Oh we were going to do at the Bristol, uh, Bristol, whatever it's called, uh, the kind of synth thing. We were going to do it, and we actually talked about it quite detailed what we would, who would do what. And um, I can't remember what it was now, but, uh, but yeah, we did have that chat, but then, of course, we never got to play, so. That, is so, that sucks. I hope that that will still happen. I have yeah. shared a stage with him once. Have you? Okay. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Yeah, I bet. Um, he's just a wonderful human being. Um, he is, yeah, he really is. Yeah, and actually that did sort of lead, there was a question, and actually I remembered what I was trying to think of, which was then how do you sequence it? You know, if you, is there any insight that you can bring to bear on, on how you, how do you take however many, 25 disparate tunes or bits and bobs and whittle it down to whatever, it's the six or seven that are in there? I think there were some fairly clear, easy decisions to make in terms of choice of which tracks. But I haven't listened to the outtakes. Maybe the outtakes are amazing, but I haven't listened to them since we kind of went through the process. I mean, in terms of sequencing, that's kind of one of the things I do in my day job a lot with artists. It's like when if sometimes they have a really clear idea of what they how they want the album sequence, sometimes they have no idea. So I, I quite enjoy that. It's kind of it's depending on what the kind of music is, of course, but it's sort of somewhere between a DJ set and a uh, kind of lying on your sofa 
you know, how, what's it going to sound like when you're lying on your sofa listening to your record player thing? It's it's really important. Sequencing is really important. I mean, for people like us who just still listen to albums. <laughs> I was going to say, like, does that not change over the years? Like, or do you have considerations where it's like, how do people even listen to music anymore? Like, things are out of sequence so much. Does that not? Does that enter into your mind? Yeah, I mean, you know that ninety percent of the people who are going to listen to whatever you put out are not going to listen to an album all the way through. I remember in the old days, I mean, talk about the 80s, maybe. It's quite the old days. Because we worked with an American, a very good American label. On, we used to work with Sire Records. And they said, just put all the, all the potential singles first on the album, which makes this kind of sense in a, in a marketing way. That's what we did with Sunroof, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, we did all the singles at the beginning. <laughs> we did it the other way around, though, because we were required to choose lead tracks. Uh, for, you know, for marketing purposes. So we just said, well, we might as well start with the first track. Yeah, because we did a few videos, and, yeah, we had to choose. We we, we were asked by the, rec- the record company, i.e. Mute, to pick some tracks that we liked. We wanted to, so we just, the first one was track one, the second one was track two, the third one was track three, so, you know. <laughs> it's a great opening track, by the way. I was going to say, it was actually, Thanks. I was like... Especially I had a very busy day at work and then I put it back on. I was like, oh, this is good. This is like a real, it's a real sort of like palate cleanser, as it were. Because you're just oh, sort of. that's nice. Mm-hmm. Good. Thank you. Thank you. That's super nice to hear. I, I like like a 40 minute piece of work, two 20 minute sides is kind of awesome for me. You know, even if I don't listen to the whole album, I definitely want to be able to listen to one side. So pretty quick, pretty rapidly it dropped down to something and we were like, hang on a minute, look, that's, that's starting to feel good. That's about 40 minutes, you know, and, and that was very important. And then there was a little bit of to and froing. There was no real disagreement. There were just like positive suggestions made, I suppose, on either side. There's a little bit of to and froing, and then the order just dropped out. And there it was. And, we, and interestingly, you can tell by the dates, actually, the, 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 the titles of the pieces contain the date. But, but the, the very first piece we did turned out to be the last piece on the record. So that was um, kind of somehow appropriate. It all seemed to make sense in a weird kind of a way. So moving back on sort of modular, like the modular world, like just generally just thinking about the sort of the state of this kind of collection of tools. Obviously, you've got, you know, you're two people who are the very sort of advanced kind of feeling, you know, advanced, sorry, advanced experience, I should say, like, you know, Daniels, you've literally, I mean, and also because we were talking about that Bright Sparks documentary, you sort of quietly slipped in the fact that you had a Synthy 100, which is just, <laughs> uh, so it's, it would be fair to say, like, obviously the love affair with Modular goes back, but it's just like, do you want to sort of, I'd be interested in your thoughts on the general state of the kind of union, as it were, as a kind of a format and as a, particularly also the Eurac industry, like, and I've, Daniel, I've seen you at uh, event, you know, I met you at Superbooth, or I met you at Ash, uh, Moogfest, actually. Moogfest, first time. yeah. And then I saw you at, bumped into you at Superbooth, and it's sort mm. of, you know, you, you're at those events, you obviously love, like, walking around. I see a sort of a bit of a trend of perhaps some people who are kind of jaded with the whole modular thing, which I I can understand. So I'm just curious what you, what do you, what's your take on it, Daniel? Well, yeah, I mean, when I, Got into Eurorack, which is just over 10 years ago now. There may be six manufacturers, six or seven manufacturers, each of whom made, well, Dupfer, obviously, uh, who were the, 
by far the biggest and the, the most extensive choice of modules. And then there was live wire, plan B, analog systems, uh, Schwemann. Uh, so there's, you know, it was manageable <laughs> in a way, you know. I mean, I think it's brilliant. I mean, I, you know, it's this whole thing about so-called democratization. You know, anybody can put their music up and it's amazing. But then you get so much music that it's very hard to sift through what you really want to listen to. And it's the same with modules, really, you know. And um, it's really, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky that I know what I like and I do get new modules, but I'm not, you know, I'm not, I've got more than enough. And, you know, I'm still learning from things I've had for 10 years, you know. I think this, the community aspect of it is really good. I think it's more in America than in Europe, but there's real, com you know, it's a very supportive community, which I really like, the, you know, I really like. And you know, I think people really want to share their experience and, they, you know, things, you know, YouTube videos, for instance, when people aren't being, it's not, it feels like it's not competitive uh, area of music. I mean, I'm, you know, that's just my interpretation. You know, when you do the, when you play at these modular events, you're not competing. It's not like, uh, yeah, we got a bigger round of applause than you did. It was like, did did it work? Did the plug work? Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. just a very different thing. I really like that. I mean, I dread to think what it would be like if I now thought, oh, well, maybe I'll get into Eurorack. Where shall I start? I mean, who? It's, you know, impossible. I mean, I'm on a couple of these Eurorack forums on Facebook. It's the only social media that I'm interested in. I don't do social media apart from that. And you do get people, and it's totally understandable. Ah, what do I do? You know, I've, this is my case. I put it together on Modular Grid. What do you think? And it's like, there's just lots of really nice modules, but they don't necessarily make any sense. <laughs> you know, it's like all the cool modules, you know. It's funny because we were talking earlier about reducing our case size. And what I, what I like really is big modules. Even if they don't do much, I like big modules. You know, I've got fat fingers and I like, I like to turn knobs. I mean, that's what it's about really, isn't it? In the end, you can, you can go around the houses listening to oscillators and filters and shit like that. Do you know what I mean? But as you said, the things, what really, like, I love logic modules. That's the thing that put, that brings everything together, you know, and I like, what have I got here? What's it called? The, uh, it's a really simple duck for dual voltage control polarizer. You know, simple modules that really make the other ones happen, you know, and I'm really into utility modules. Yeah, very much so. And, Comparator, the Duranalog comparator, whatever it's called. You know, anyway, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I love sequences. I'm a, I've always, since I had my, but way, but all the way back when I got, got first got my ARP sequencer, I just, because I can't play. Mm. And um, so I've just loved sequence. I've been through loads of sequences over the years. The vector is brilliant. I absolutely, I use it all the time for lots of different things. And um, it's, it's, it's very deep, it's very intuitive. Yeah, that's the thing. I wasn't sure about it. I, I saw that and was just like, is this, is it a pleasure to use? You know, it's the question. Of th it is. The thing is, I, I knew how to use it kind of because I came from numerology and it's the same basic operating system. So, I mean, there's a big learning curve because Jim's constantly up, you know, updating it in great ways. But you can use it in a very simple way or you can go super deep. And it's not that menu driven. I mean, like, well, it is menu driven, but you get, I don't know. I don't like menu. And I, I, I don't like menu-driven modules, generally speaking. I guess the question is like, what sort of things can you set up on it? You know, what kind of, is it sort of, it's generative, isn't it? So it's, it's that like, what's it doing, you know? If you think of like a metropolis, 
at, at the kind of sort of top level, it's like having eight metropoli. Oh, that does sound quite good. <laughs> yeah. So I think eight, it's eight, eight channel, eight part, eight tracks, or whatever. Yeah. whatever. You know, you've got ratchets, you can do skips and jumps, and you've got different directions. But you can go deeper, you go much deeper into it. I think of it now more like a voltage source than a sequencer. I mean, all sequencers are voltage sources. And I use it to control, in the same way that I might use a voltage block, I might, you know, use it to control changes, things like, you know, like timbral changes a lot, yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, that's something I'm, I'm ne- I always forget to do, like... The, the beauty of like stepped voltage sources. I've often used like the Turing machine for that just because it's, yeah, it just gives you that wonderful repetitive voltage, but sequencer indeed. It's hard getting ones that have got so many outputs, but I need to get myself a vector. Gareth, what's your thoughts on the sort of state of modular and the kind of. You know, I did have a small 100M system in the 80s inspired by Daniel, by working with Daniel and, and, uh, and Depeche. I didn't really create much original music with that. I'm a huge enthusiast of, when, of, of the Eurorack world. It's way deeper and way broader than I've even begun to grapple with. I suppose I've had two inspirations here, one of whom, of course, is Daniel, the other half of Sunroof, is continually inspiring. And the other is Andreas Schneider, who's been very uh, kind and supportive and a trailblazer uh, for me. Um, one of the things that he, that, that Daniel mentioned recently, reminded us both of one of the things that Andreas has been preaching for a long time is just build, you know, take a smaller rack and build an instrument for what you, you want to do, you know, this month or, or, or this quarter kind of thing. Mm. And so currently I'm really enjoying doing that. I bought, bought an IntelliJ 62 for you palette thing mm. on vacation with me and that's been really i've got i feel i've got so much to learn of of all of the modules that i've got already that, and that's really exciting and, and and you know my investigation of of this whole euro rack world which i it was very refreshing to me because i know it's not cheap but it's, it's kind of vaguely affordable and and, and before this euro rack revolution i suppose happened if you wanted modular synth you were really faced with the expense and, and the maintenance costs of the vintage gear i just couldn't couldn't justify it to myself even though it's a, a very broad and super crowded field now i don't see that as a problem i wouldn't say i'm in the least bit jaded i feel i've got exciting avenues to explore with the, all the modules i've got never mind any ones i might buy in the future and it's gone along, as I kind of touched on earlier, because of the fact that I can't store the stuff and so much of it is in the moment. It's gone along with a real development in my personal life from having thousands of folders on the computer of unfinished stuff to, to actually making records and, and finishing projects. And, and that's such a... I can't separate the two things, Alex, for me. You know, it's like... So I'm seriously indebted to all the makers for providing this incredible technology and these amazing instruments that are actually allowing me to finish things and collaborate with great people and put records out. But I'm, at the moment, I'm really enjoying this idea of, okay, let's, let, let me take a small rack. And for instance, in, uh, I, I built a, 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 sampler, a sampler rack to investigate the 
electronic music improvisations volume two possibilities. I I just turned up for the first session with a morphogene and a bitbox and a couple of a filter and a, you know a couple of effects. That was forcing me to to think in a completely different way. And like this little little small rack I've got on vacation with me is forcing me to to think in a completely different way. And it's so open and I love integrating it with my iPad. Thank you to all the makers for making this awesome stuff. Hmm. That does seem like the that whole thing of having the palette and using it as a kind of literally a palette, you know, literally like a palette. You know, it's your it's the dabs of colour that you feel will fit that painting. And it's I've definitely had that same experience. I've made a couple of videos with the palette and it's a, it was a good device for a video. I was like, Oh, this, this will be an easier way of explaining things. And then the more I did it, the more I thought, no, this actually just is a really good way of approaching modular. Cause it's, you can have all of these bloody modules and, and not feel so guilty that you're, you're treating them a bit like a library. Um, I was thinking of Mr. Martin Gore and his, his <laughs> pictures of his studio, but Speaking to Martin, he does actually, he, it was interesting, he's using, though he has lots of modules, he's using them in clusters. And it's the idea that even, even notionally, if you've got a wall, literally a wall of modular, it's still about the relationship of just a few little things together. Yeah, and that's wonderful to hear. And that's, that's what Andreas has been preaching. I think we're both doing it, actually. I think Daniel's doing it. I'm certainly building it back into my life, and it's really productive. And I don't get so overwhelmed. Either, you know, and it's still incredibly deep and incredibly fun and incredibly productive. But I, 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 I it's like my brother-in-law, like I do some watercolors, right? In fact, the album cover is one of my watercolors. I'm a novice watercolor painter, so my watercolor case has got probably like 24 different little pans in it of different colors. Now, my brother-in-law has been painting his whole life. And he goes out into the field and does watercolours with just three colours, man. Hmm. And, so, and they're amazing. They're way better than what I do, you know. And so there's a kind of a parallel there, you know, obviously palette as well, you know, but, but because he's very skilled at mixing and blending the colours in a way that, you know, Turner was very skilled at mixing and blending colours. I'm a bit insecure with my watercolours, so unless I go out with the 56 different colours, I think I can't make a painting, hmm. you know. But actually, you know, I can do it with three. I think there's only three colours on the on the cover of the sunroof record. Mm. You know, so it's it's very interesting. It's, it's minimal, bringing a bit of minimal back. You know, to, I mean, my 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 collection of modules is is nothing like as extensive as Daniel's collection, but still, it's quite a lot of modules. You know, and and shrinking this stuff down. To, I'm really excited actually for the next projects I'm going to do to shrink things down to say, okay, well, I'm just going to take this small case and, I, and I, I'm not be frightened, actually, because my modules are quite big. My 7U case is not as packed as Daniel's and, and I'm not being frightened of saying, okay, I'm just going to redesign that case now and make something different and put a different combination of modules in it, which is obviously very much in the spirit of modular, you know, but, but it's something that I've not really done. I've, I've just, like, kept adding modules and buying another case and Buying another first studio case because it's cheap and solid, and just racking it up and racking it up. But 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 just pulling a cluster of modules together, it's just been great for me. Sorry, was that a bit of a rant? <laughs> no, no, a very very wise rant. I I agree. 
I saw your video, uh, Alex, on the uh, doing the easel. Uh, yeah. The, Duplicate, you know, doing a version of the Bukla easel on a pallet. That was great. I really enjoyed that. I got some flack from that from from the easel purists. I was like, well, of course. <laughs> course. I mean, how could I not? It's the internet, yeah. isn't it? So, yeah. <laughs> but it's um, it, you know, it, I remember like that, and the um, I put together a pallet that just had like the the plats, an LF, or it had like a plats of stages, a quantizer, and was and uh, and an FX aid for reverb pretty much yeah. and maybe a rings and it was just mm. no yeah it was rings and so it was just that ability to just take lfos and then put them into a mixer and then quantize them and let the lfos just sort of create the stair steps and just use the mixer to adjust the the levels which and then just that that the rings into a reverb you know it's a bit of a modular cliche at this point but my God, it sounds good. <laughs> you know, it's just like, it's a cliche for a reason. And it's, uh, I actually just spent, you know, I, I spent a good while after I made the video just enjoying that system alone. And it, it did make me think, I was like, it feels fun to know that you can see the fullest extent of something and that you do have a rough understanding of all aspects of it. And it's just simple and in front of you. Whereas I feel that I can, I'm sure this, it seems to be what you're saying is that you look at a computer, you look at the potential of a studio, you know, you go into a professional studio, it's got all these options and stuff. And it's, I don't find that makes me creative in a sense. I think there's, but there is a sort of aspect that the traditional classic gear can be quite thrilling and it's, you know, being in its presence. But at the end of the day, it's, um, we want simple things. I think it's, and, and it's that sense that you can, talking to Adrian Utley about this name drop but it was you know he says the same he's like what excites me is that idea of just having a mini Moog and a reel-to-reel yeah yeah and it's just you and that and that's it yeah yeah, yeah. exactly I suppose that it, like the the final question is really the future of music technology um I've got some noise that people like Daniel obviously you've got you've got the past of music technology I mean you have and I, I would be remiss not to ask you about is it true that you've got Florian Schneider's vocoder? It's the craft, the original Kraftwerk vocoder, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it doesn't work, but, right, still, okay. it, doesn't well, yeah. but it doesn't matter. Yeah, no, it's, it's more just to have. <laughs> yeah. I suppose it's, I guess, you know, lensing your thoughts over the, the equipment that you've played with over a, a good, good while, um, 40 years or so. And then of the equipment that you have now and, and thinking ahead to the future is like, you know, what... What do you see as the the direction that it should go or could go? What what would excite you? I mean, the, the future of music technology. I have no idea. I have no idea where it's going. Obviously, uh, digital is massive. I'm quite excited by where iOS is going with music. I enjoy the tablet format for computers. I like the, t- the way you can touch the screen. Uh, so that's one aspect of it. I have recently bought a two-track Rebox that I use a lot in my professional work to putting mixes onto. And ever since I bought the Rebox, all the mixes go to Rebox and in back into my digital rig. And almost everyone has chosen the tape masters. It's a subtle difference. So I'm kind of looking forward and back. But where music technology is going, I have no idea. For me personally, it's about setting boundaries and I, I've, I've really 
found out that I, if I limit myself in time and in multi-track, a number of tracks that I'm allowing myself to use in the, in the DAW and in length of time that I spend on projects, that it's enormously beneficial. I know artists have spoken about this forever, but, but it's, it's become a, something very personally relevant to me. And, and I've, I've entered into this commitment to operate with inside limitations, and it's hugely productive. So I'm looking forward to a decade of uh, reduced toolkits, actually. Now, it's just what you said, really, about what Mr. Hartley said, a mini mood and a tape recorder. I'm not saying much different from that, really. But limitations are incredibly great for me. And the more possibilities I get in my laptop and in iOS and with, you know, my hard-earned money going on, on yet more modules, then the more I start to appreciate the, the value of the limitations. And the limitations of time that was one of the wonderful things about, about this Sunroof project was that Daniel and I committed to meeting, but with limited time, because we both had limited time. And if, if, we, if we'd pulled all our modular into one studio and not limited ourselves with time, we wouldn't even be having this conversation because we wouldn't have made the record. And that's really been such a wake-up call, I think. And yet again, you know, yet again, another wake-up call. Look, we limited ourselves, and it was wonderful. You know, so, so I'm liking that. <laughs> oh, man. Daniel, what is the – we're thinking to your favourite tools, I guess, having tried everything and possibly owned maybe one of everything. <laughs> what is the future? I mean, I, I, I have – well, first of all, I have no clue about the future. I'm already, like – I haven't really used a – digital technology for a few years so i'm already so behind the curve that i'm not really uh not really in a position to uh, comment on that even because i have no idea what's going on now you know so i mean i think one of the things i think would will and it's, i'm sure we're pretty close to it is um you know being able to really to i mean collaborate online i mean you can do it with certain technology but you can't i mean gareth and i couldn't do a sunroof right now couldn't do a sunroof track on as, online in, in, in real time, I don't think. And I think that technology, it's got to be coming soon. And I think that's really interesting. You know, and now working remotely much more and people are moving away from there, from, you know, moving out. You just moved out to, to Leeds. You know, people mm. are moving in different directions physically. I think that would be, that's, a, I think that's, that's what I'm excited about. <laughs> in terms of modular, for my personal use anyway, I worry. I mean, I'm not really into these really having too many of these modules that do a lot of different things. I, I like the simple, yeah, going back to more like simple, bigger modules with which do less. <laughs> yeah, I can't really speak about the, what, what, I mean, the, what the boffins are doing in their kitchens right now is, we'll, we'll only find out, I haven't got a clue. I suppose that then another way of phrasing that question is, what must we not forget from the past? Well, I think what Gareth touched on is, is really important. You know, when I, when I started, I was using a two track, then a four track, then an eight track, then a 16 track, then a 24 track, then a 48 track, and then a DAW. And I don't think I necessarily did better things on a DAW with endless tracks that I did on a four track. You know, uh, I think commitment is really important. I mean, committing is really important. I think that, I mean, I've always been against um, presets, even right from the beginning. 
I because like I've always found going through presets on a synth is like one of those mindless things you can do. <laughs> you know, what, create your own sound. Always create your own sounds, even if it's not as good as that kind of incredible ambient, washy, reverby, multi thingy. I think being true to yourself in your expression. And I think if you make electronic music, what I call, you know, in the purest sense of the word, you know, you should be making your own. So you should really be making your own instruments, but I, I can't do that. But, you know, there were no preset presets when I started. And that was really great because I actually learned how to use the equipment and to misuse it and abuse it, you know. So, so most of those things I'm thinking about are more like going backwards, you know, learn how to make sounds. Obviously with the modular, that's, you, you can't get away with not doing that limitations but then but the limitations are not limitations at all they're liberations actually yeah yeah, yeah. It's, you know it's liberating to have four tracks or eight tracks you know when i first got my four track years but you know all those years back it was a liber i thought wow i got four tracks amazing you know um so i, I can't say really but i think i think if you're making if you want to make electronic you know, good electronic music it's really make it starts with the it's everything starts kind of with a sine wave in a sense, building your own sound and your own character. Otherwise, you just end up sounding like everybody else. And what's the point? I, I loved what you said about commitment, Daniel. That uh, that's so central that when when the, you know the question was like, so what can't we do without or whatever you're saying? Actually, you know, then I thought that was so good. I wish I'd said that. And that's so true. And that's kind of what we've been banging on about the whole app. That's what's so powerful about this, this modular world for us all, isn't it? Is that you have to commit, and it might be shit, but it is what it is. You can't, you can't put it off till later. You either record it or you don't record it. And, it's, and later on, you either think, oh, that was quite good, or you wipe it off forever. Commitment, so great, so great. And, and limitations force us to commit, which is wonderful. I second, I second that. <laughs> I third it. Yeah. You first did it, I think, Daniel, uh, but anyway, yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thank you thank both. Thank you. Thank you. Look thank you so to, much. Look forward to hearing the edit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> In a few months. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, Daniel Miller and Gareth Jones, thank you very much for your time. I found it really gratifying to hear that even people who've been making music for 50 years or more struggle with finishing jams as well. Uh, it feels like there's something kind of inherently problematic with the format, but it is just so wonderful to be able to like rig up systems and jam out on them. And it's very interesting, that whole rule set that they applied. And I definitely, I listened to that and was just like, I'm going to try this. Six minutes sounds completely right. And I think it was, it was specifically what Daniel said, where he said in a six minute recording, there's an arc. If you edit down an hour, then you're trying to make an arc that wasn't really there in the first place. And that is, that was a real like, huh? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense. Daniel Miller, thank you very much for pointing it out because you're right. If you're trying to make an arc out of an hour, it's very hard. It didn't exist and it's possibly not there, but in six minutes, 
it's like it's go time let's make an arc and as they said they could see the kind of progress bar and see how where you know where they were in the six minute sort of period looking at ableton interesting that is something that i think we can all benefit from doing is set a time limit the jam happens in this period of time therefore you've got to try and create the arc in that time stops you from kind of like navel gazing too much i mean i'm sure you know it's all jams are kind of navel gazing but that's by god that's the whole point of making music i want to gaze at my navel that's why i've got a modular synth in spite of that though the whole thing daniel said where he was like i don't think i necessarily did better things on a daw versus when i had a four track <laughs> which was another like huh like like really like really did you do you really make much much better music because a door exists versus a four track existing you know that is something that really does bear thinking about because well of course the door has you know there's a lot of music that gets written and a lot of it is influenced by the design of the door and the capabilities that it puts out you know technical brilliance and the kind of you know, you're sort of, again, slightly, the amount that you've been able to edit something and kind of spend just disappearing into, like, micro-editing, does it make a song better? Like, are those the things that actually make for, like, lasting music, or is it just, like, basic elements, like the chord structure and stuff, which really doesn't make any difference if you're using a four-track or a DAW? Um, hmm. <laughs> Uh, there were quite a few things of that nature that I I think I learned something. So <laughs> I hope you did too. Yeah, interesting. And by the way, the record by Sunroof, which is called Electronic Music Improvisations Volume 1, implying a volume 2, which obviously Gareth said is happening, is wonderful. It really is a lovely, enveloping, beautiful listen. It's good. So check it out. You can find it if you go to the catchy URL mute.ffm.to forward slash sunroof.opr. Yes, that ain't going to make a jingle anytime soon. Just look for Sunroof, Electronic Music Improvisations Volume 1. And it's on pretty much everything. Go listen, stream, buy, pick up the vinyl, give it a big hug, listen on Spotify if you must, buy it on iTunes, Bandcamp, Amazon Music, Deezer bleep. So I think that's pretty much it. Next time we will present a conversation with the eminently lovely Tony Rolando from Make Noise. Don't even worry about it. Big chat with Tony. So tune in, tell your friends if you enjoyed this episode. I very much rely on your recommendations because this podcast is obscure. Let's just face it. So anything you can do to help tell people if you're enjoying it, if you are also enjoying it, please consider sponsoring on Patreon. That is patreon.com forward slash Melodies. You can chip in and help the making of the podcast and the videos. You'll note that I did a demo of the Metropolix from IntelliGel, which is a wonderful sequencer. Although, of course, Daniel Miller is like, I should just get a, uh, get a 512 Hector. Maybe I will have to try that too. But by goodness, I'm going to stick the Metropolix into my live system and jam for six minutes. That's it. Thanks very much. <laughs>